foot enthusiasts, minimal footwear lovers, or anyone trying to fix your own feet, I'm heading to North Carolina this May to lead a live, in-person, three-day retreat all about feet. I'm going to be at the Art of Living Retreat Center, which is up in the mountains of North Carolina. It's so beautiful there. And are you ready to hear what I'm calling it? The retreat is called Healing Your Soul, a stepwise approach to building forever functional feet. That's so good, right? If you want to learn all about how to take care of the muscles, bones, joints, fascia, and nerves of the feet, and learn how strong feet and ankles relate to sustainable hips and knees, this event is for you. In addition to the classroom and movement time with me, you're on retreat. So there's delicious meals, a nature-rich campus that you can explore on foot, and plenty of time for rest and relaxation, all included. A retreat is a perfect way to care for yourself in the moment, but also in the future. You are coming to learn a massive toolkit of information. So whether you're a competitive runner, a dynamic ager, or a healthcare practitioner, this is a weekend full of movement for you and your feet. And like I said, you're gonna leave with a toolkit and a big swag bag that you can use to train your feet for life. For more information about the movement sessions, the food, the center, head to my website, nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. That's nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. Hello, I am Katie Bowman, and this is the Move Your DNA podcast. I am a biomechanist and the author of Move Your DNA and seven other books on movement. On this show, we talk about how movement works on the cellular level, how to move more, and how to move more of your parts, as well as how movement works between bodies and in the world, also known as movement ecology. All bodies are welcome here. Are you ready to get moving? Well, hello there. I am back, but am I back with a horn? That's today's question. You probably heard about or read because you're interested in human movement and shape as I am. A study out of Australia that examined the x-rays of 1,200 Australians between the ages of 18 and 86. The study found that 40% of the people between the ages of 18 and 30 who were x-rayed had, let's say for simplicity, a bone spur growing from the base of their skull. In the media's write-up, these spurs were referred to as horns, and researchers strongly suggested these so-called horns were the result of the forward head position common to tech use, especially smartphones. So, are smartphones causing us to grow horns? That's today's show. I'm going to talk about this study, but also the phenomenon of how studies are often reported on. Because it's fresh, we're going to break down some of the reporting on this study as well as the reporting on that reporting and how it was all being shared and discussed and if we can even still use that term for what happens in online comment sections. Whether you gave headlines a cursory glance or read multiple articles to get a broader understanding, we're all affected by this process of information. We all walk away with an understanding based on how we interact with information. What did you walk away from this whole humans are growing horns thing? Today, my friend Jeanette Lorem is on the show. Jeanette has a PhD in biology, and she is also one of our nutritious movement instructors, so she understands the mechanical point of view that I try to teach. She understands that very well. I also wanted Jeanette to come on because when I read online discussions, not only about these so-called horns, 
but about many body shape related things, I can see there's a lot of misuse or misunderstanding around terms like evolution and adaptation. These concepts are key to the discussion at hand, or is it discussion at horn? Anyway, we can all benefit from a better understanding about the relationship between anatomy, physiology, and culture, especially for those of us interested in and participating in discussions about movement and natural movement and the way movement influences physiology, anatomy, and humans as a group. We also wanted to discuss the process we go through when we read things like studies and reports on studies and what we walked away with. We want to share our process with you because we're both often asked, how can I discern good sources information from others? And what should I be reading as a source? Or perhaps more importantly, how should I be reading sources? Dr. Jeanette Lorem, hello, my friend. Welcome to Move Your DNA. Thank you very much for having me on. I'm very excited to talk about these things with you today, Katie. Well, we like to talk about these things just anytime we're together. It's true. And That's I also true. think there is a, there's a loneliness when you like to talk about them all the time and maybe not other people like to talk about them as much. So thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me again. So I'm going to lead with the story reported about the research because I'm going to bet that most folks out there read the story about the research first rather than the research first. So I read the story first. How did you interact with it? Yeah, actually, I was exactly the same. It was um, it was a post on Facebook by um, a colleague and it was the Washington Post article. So I that was that was first my first view of it. Yeah. And I think that is for most people, too. And if you're sitting out there going, I have no idea what this podcast is about, I'm going to explain. So the Washington Post wrote about the study June 2019, and this was the headline that appeared over the story. Horns are growing on young people's skull. Phone use is to blame, research suggests. Okay, so that's the, the story or the article about the study. The study was published in the journal Nature in February of 2018, the title of the paper, Prominent Exostosis Projecting from the Occipital Squama More Substantial and Prevalent in Young Adult Than Older Age Groups. So those are different. Let's just start with <laughs> those are different. And I want to sort some of them out. What did you do as soon as you saw the headline? Well, I always scan, I have to say, what the, what the general article is about and then immediately try and find the original paper, mm -hmm. which I would do that with almost anything because I know that it will be a very fun, catchy spin on the story and it may be quite different in the literature. So I would, that's what, exactly what I did, was find the article and actually read that and see how it matches to the Washington Post article. And we talked about this before. It's very hard to find the original research articles. Yes, absolutely. Because for some reason, many journalists fail to include them. And, and even now in today's hyperlinking society where a link is such a simple thing and all articles are linked, but usually to a publication's other writings about it, there is a big resistance, and I'm not sure why, to linking to the source of the study that is in discussion. There's there's very few publications that that link. And it's not only that they don't link, they don't put the title. They'll put something like, they'll put the journal title, 
and the researcher's name in interview style, but nothing else. So you're just left Google scholaring keywords. <laughs> you know, that's what I do. I use keywords yeah. and the journal title. So I'm trying to think of if we could create a list of steps. This is my first step is try to find before I even really process this story about the articles, I immediately go get the article through Googling. What about you? Yes, absolutely. I've also, I should say, been really frustrated about this. And I don't know why it happens. It's almost, I don't I don't know, I'm, I'm maybe casting aspersions, but people are maybe reading someone else's article and haven't right. even read the original article. They've just seen maybe Washington Post was the first and then everybody else. I mean, the article was then in a whole like slew of articles. And I wonder how many people actually, how many journalists went and looked at the original article. But what I find often is the most fruitful is actually to find the researcher on their page on their university. Mm. So if you usually it will say in the article somewhere, something like, you know, Dr. Smith from University of Oxford or whatever. So you can Google that and, and maybe something about their their field of research, especially if it's a common name. And usually you find their personal page on the university website. And often it lists recent publications. Or if that fails, it would be to put their name and a few keywords into something like PubMed or Google Scholar, Mm -hmm. which will usually bring out what you want. But sometimes it takes you a a few times to get it. Um, Horns would not, you know, if you put horns, you wouldn't, and the researcher's name, you wouldn't have come up with that on Google Scholar. So it's finding the right words. Because they didn't use the word horns in their right, research. Right, right. Yes. And yeah. horns have nothing to do with bones. <laughs> no, which, that's right. That's right. Because horns are made of keratin. That's right. <laughs> so right, right, right. That's insane. But anyway. And I think that that's a very good point. I would say, and I have a different experience because I am often used as an expert for media articles. And I know that many times people coming to ask me on comments of studies or other things, I'll say, I can't comment without the study. Could you send it to me? And they won't actually have the study. In many cases, what they have is a press release on a study, right? which is already simplified. And then everyone's just trying to kick out a story really quick so they can be timely on it. But it's not, it's like more reporting on the publicity of the piece, not necessarily the piece itself. So I do think that that's probably key to what's happening in the overall reporting is it's very challenging. Still, I would imagine that most press releases have the name of the actual (laughs) publication and just put that in, journalists out there listening. Yeah, I cannot imagine that a press release would not have the paper. Right. Although sometimes they're embargoed. I do find that sometimes press releases come when papers are still not out yet, which is an interesting phenomenon in itself. But anyway, we could talk about science reporting a lot, but I want to talk more about the mechanics and about the biology, because I think that we'll just do two shows. Are you in? We'll just do two or three shows. We'll keep going. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Two shows would be good. There's a lot. There's a lot of meat. (laughs) There's There's a lot of meat. Yeah. All right. So I wanted to sort out some of the language first. I kind of I sure. like to start with that. So let me just lay down a few definitions. And I want to start with the term exostosis. Exostosis, which was in the paper. So I wonder if there's an article. So article could mean for most people, research article or 
media article, the term article is, I guess, just about the write-up. So I'll use research versus, what's a, what's a good word to, to use for the story about the research? I don't know. I'm not sure. Maybe it'll flush itself out. But anyway, yeah. researchers use exostosis. Exostosis is the formation of additional bone from the surface of an existing bone. Exostoses are benign, meaning they're not like a tumor, but benign, because if you look up that word, you'll say, like, it'll say something like benign bone growth. But exostoses are not benign in the fact that they're not problematic. They're just not malignant. They can still be symptomatic. And you are probably, listeners, already familiar with the phenomenon of exostosis because another word often used for exostosis are bone spurs. And one example of common exostosis would be bunions. So if that helps get a framework around what maybe some of the research is saying or what that paper was saying. Now you have muscles all over your body and these muscles need to attach to something so they can generate leverage. If you've ever seen a skeleton live or even a model or even a picture, I think you can see that the skeleton itself isn't really smooth. There are there are bumps on your bones. There are tiny areas that stick out a bit. And these tiny mountains of bones are usually what a muscle's tendon will attach to. And they are called in anatomy protuberances or eminences. There might be another term too. And I'm not actually certain on the difference between a protuberance or an eminence. It might be the size of it where it gets classified differently. But anyway, this is important in the horns discussion because the paper wasn't explaining a new bone. I mean, it certainly wasn't explaining a horn, but it wasn't explaining a new bone. Rather, the authors were discussing about an increase in length of a protuberance, something that all skulls already have because it's where you have ligaments and muscles attaching to. And the protuberance that they're discussing was the external occipital protuberance. So external means it's on the outside of the skull in this case. Occipital is one of the bones of the skull. Your skull is not actually one bone. It's got 22 bones, including the bones of the face. And there's some variation, but let's say 22 bones. And the occipital bone is the bone in the lower back of the skull, just above your neck. And protuberance just simply means a part that sticks out. So external occipital protuberance. It's this tiny little lump on the back of your skull where it it provides a connection point so that the parts that attach to it can generate leverage to support your head or move your head as needed. The paper is describing exostosis of a bony protuberance and anatomy is so great. Excessive growth of a protuberance actually has its own name. Of course it does. And it is, I don't even know if I'm going to say it right. Jeanette, you can weigh in. It's, it's an enthesophyte, I think. Enthesophyte. That's, that's how I would pronounce it. Yeah. I actually found this a difficult read because of that word that they used way more than they did actually exostosis without defining it. That's right. And that's another issue with reading papers that are outside of your field. Right. Because if I'm going to read a paper, even in biology, I feel like I'm having to, like I use every field, uh, you say, you know, they co-opt terms from each other. There's only so many language terms. And when you're trying to describe a phenomenon, you're reaching into the same pot of language. Sometimes you create new words 
sometimes you put a bunch of other Latin words together, you know, to describe a phenomenon. So they don't always mean the same thing, but yeah, it, they want to clarify because some bone spurs happen on smooth bone and that has its own name. I feel like I could be Googling a lot of language. They have their own name and I feel like it's like an ensophite. An Do you know what it is? So I was actually very confused by what by this fact that they were talking about enthesophytes, but the abstract in the title had exostosis. Right. And what I discovered, again, by Googling, these are the definitions I found, that the enthesophyte was an abnormal bony projection at the site of attachment of a tendon or a ligament, right. and then osteophyte was an abnormal bony projection in the joint space. Yeah. So my interpretation was an exostosis was the general term, right? but the specific terms were enthesophyte and osteophyte. Does right. that make sense? That's right. Yes. You? So yeah. osteophyte is the other term I'm looking for. So exostosis is, exostosis to me is the pro, the growth of it. Right. And the subclassification of a enthesophyte or an osteophyte is more the location of that growth. Yeah, that was exactly my interpretation. And I think that the reason they have a different language is, is lovers, so lovers aren't, they're not equal in length. I mean, nothing is equal when you consider, and equal is not the right word. They're not exactly the same shape because your bones are, they're being created by you as you move around. And so people who move in different ways would need different lever lengths. Our lever lengths are all different. And I think of bony perturbances as levers. They are, they are shorter than the long levers of, let's say, the long, the, the humerus or the femur. But mechanically speaking, their function is the same. They're, they're there for leverage to generate torque. And so I think it's helpful to have, when you're measuring something that is bearing greater torque than say the surface of you know two bones that there would be there would be a variance of it so i the fact that there are two terms makes sense to me i think that bone spurs are probably more osteophytes with the way that people are used to thinking about it like your problematic bone spur would be an osteophyte but i would not say that a I mean, what is a bunion? Is a bunion then an osteophyte? Probably. Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Yeah. But I don't know. And the thing about exostosis is there's a mechanical process to exostosis. It doesn't mean that, right. that it's the only way that it can come about. But the easy way that I explain it is when you have things pull on your body quite a lot, the excessive pull... And excessive is relative, but let's say let's say that more that the load that you create regularly through repetitive movements, it needs to the the tissues involved in those motions need to beef themselves up, so to speak. They have to diffuse the load better. So they can do that by changing shape a little bit. And then there's also maybe some protective features. There's not maybe not only one feature that ex, not only one problem that exostosis solves. But in general, the understanding of it is you're mechanically loading it so much that it has to change its shape to deal with the burden. And, and the paper was measuring, I don't know, 1,200 skulls 
and saying this lever is longer, but it wasn't only that it's longer. So so the, the lever length seems to change in people with age. Right. Whether it's only because of age or because of length of a particular mechanical habit, those haven't been separated yet. But it's more that I think what was more alarming from the research re- researcher's perspective is we're seeing a feature that usually changes in older age starting to change in a younger group. And then I think where the article had a lot of problems, and, and we'll talk about that here in a second, was they kind of spent a lot of time talking about like conjecture of what could cause it rather than just focusing on describing what it was. And that that made the paper, I would say, vulnerable to more critiques. But anyway, we'll talk about the paper starting now. I'll just wind up to say that Washington Post didn't use exostosis in its headline for obvious reasons. If we're talking about, you know, when they write stuff up. But I feel like they went with horns for other obvious reasons, which I'll just put clickbait here in capital mm-hmm. letters and flash my hands. Personally, I would have gone with neck bunions because it's both attention getting and slightly more accurate, but it's just the, it's just this idea that something is changing as far as shape goes. So what do you want to talk about first? How about what was your experience with the paper? Okay, well, I thought the paper was, was interesting. I think its biggest letdown was its results. So I read the introduction. It had some good um, premise. It had a good premise. And then I got to the results section and nothing, and it didn't seem to add up. Mm-hmm. It has a very, very short results section. So in a in a scientific paper, there's always a wordy description of the results, and then there's always some figures, or there's almost always some figures. And if you actually look at the results and their and their their conclusions from those results, it doesn't add up. And the figures don't match the word results. Right. So I think there's there's a really big issue with that. And I imagine <laughs> Scientific Reports, which is the journal it was published in, has been in contact with this the authors to get a correction done. And it'll be very interesting to see what comes out in terms of a correction. So what happens if if, if something comes to light that is incorrect or doesn't make sense, then um, a journal and authors can publish what they call a correction. Now, I haven't seen that come out yet. So it'll be interesting to see mm-hmm. what comes out because one of their one of their biggest conclusions was that males were 5.48 times more likely to have um, what they called um, an excessive protuberance than females, but that doesn't that's not borne out in their figure four, which if anyone has actually looked right. at the figure, it doesn't matter if you do or you don't, but they actually look, males and females look very similar. So, and, and I think the figure is probably wrong. Because it seems to be, as a hmm. general rule, it seems that these protuberances are larger in men in general. And I think that they're actually right. used sometimes in anthropo- um, anthropological studies to actually differentiate skulls between male and female. That's right. So it would That's seem right. to me that they've just probably made a mistake in their figure. But it does obviously mean that it's very hard to draw conclusions when their results one of their main figures is incorrect. And I kept rereading it thinking, what am I missing? Right. <laughs> and then realized that I wasn't missing something. It was just obviously an error. So that was that was a big thing for me. There were also some suggestions in it which seemed 
almost too small to be relevant, really. I don't know if you saw that, Katie, where they 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 talk about this is particularly in relation to forward head. So in the paper, we haven't mentioned this yet, but they they were basically did some analysis which showed that one of the main determinants of having um, what they called excessive protuberance was being male. And the second thing that had a significant effect was the degree of forward head position. Katie, you might be better to explain that phenomenon than me, but it's essentially, you know, what we think of as that forward head of forward of the shoulders position. And they were trying, they were suggesting that that was significant in in predicting whether you have one of these protuberances or not. But they, but the relationship seemed very small, and to me would would seem almost insignificant. But but they claim it's significant. So I I would have loved to have seen a raw data, like a, t- a data table. Right. And that was one criticism is that they didn't include no. any data tables. So it was really hard to, to really know whether their data is, is valid. And it will be very interesting to see it, what comes out in the correction. Because I think some of it was just a mistake. That was a real concern. And that's, that's something that I, you know, going back to our original topic of how you would read um, a scientific paper, it would be it would be quite a thorough reading of the results and the looking at the figures and looking at the conclusions and seeing if it makes sense and that can be quite hard to do sometimes yeah do you think it's practical for folks to learn how to read scientific papers without i mean it's not really no no i i actually don't i think it's it's um i mean this paper was not i mean it's it's easy for me to read the results section um, because I have enough experience of statistics and data presentation, but I found some of the language challenging because it's not my field of expertise. So I had to do, you know, a bit of digging around. But I think, I think someone with no background in science, it's nigh on impossible because they articles are, are written for scientific articles are written. They say for peers. So what that means is you are writing assuming that the person reading your paper has a similar background to you. Right. So if you are a molecular biologist, you write in a language that another molecular biologist would understand without much elaboration. And it's the same with this paper. It would have been written for other uh, chiropractors, maybe other anthropologists or biomechanics, you know, biomechanists uh, or that kind of maybe physiotherapists. But it's not written for people to be able to really understand without a significant amount of background. And I think that's that's um that's a problem with how how science and research are actually conveyed to the general public because often they're of great interest to the general public but but they're not that's not transmitted in a very effective way. And that's probably another topic for another day. But yeah, so it's like I can keep talking about this paper from the mechanical as you said it's been identified for, I would say, a while that there's a variation in shape of these protuberances. So I think the fact that there was a variance in shape of the protuberances, like my personal interest is in how we process information about movement, not only how we move, but I, I've spent so much time studying movement. At this point, I'm probably more interested in studying sedentarism. Right. Because I feel like if you approached the movement phenomenon, like we're more sedentary than we move. So therefore it seems to me that the phenomenon of 
sedentarism needs to be investigated more thoroughly. So I feel like that's kind of where I've taken my study of movement to to start to look at why are we so sedentary? What are the mechanics of a, a sedentary person besides just not moving? But then what are all the things that come into that? And then it goes up to the cultural level, which would just be large groups of people not moving. And, and how do when we have this dual role of being kind of a group of people moving towards the scientific process as a way of knowing and understanding the world, it still doesn't help us really make decisions in a particular way. It helps us maybe know some of the facts, but we don't necessarily move more because a study has come out showing that we should. You know what I mean? Like It's not the only compass for behavior, if you will. But I was interested in how... It seemed like all of the reporting of this paper seemed to be more with the intent to dismiss it as a whole, full stop, versus what we're doing now, which is what I do when I read anything, which is to pull it up and to take the pieces of it that are clear, and sometimes that is only the data that's gathered, which in this case wasn't fully included in the study, And then you can see what the flaws are and then read the criticisms. That's another one of our steps, hey? Absolutely, yeah. Let's say that reading the paper, you could go read the paper. And I would say that oftentimes this is a problem with paywalls. Yes. You can't actually access the paper in many cases. So your ability, even if you could read the data through your training, you'd have to pay $30 or $50 to be able to pay it. And like, who cares? You know what I mean? Like there's so much going on to read about. Right. And you're not making any money by doing it. So so paywall and the fact that science does influence, understanding influences our lives, but that it's not accessible for everyone to have a, a, the ability to process it. That's an issue. But let's say that you pay for the paper. How do you, how do you pull out the things that you need to mull on? Or how does, how does someone reading this shape the next research better? Like that's, and I feel like this, this is their second paper on this. Is that right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, they have got, which I think was an earlier paper and it was just on the young, it was just on, it was just right. on young people. And I think one of the criticisms of that early paper, so just, if you don't know, papers are just, they're like one tiny piece and you're collecting lots of pieces together and you do a paper and then people criticize it. And criticism, I don't only mean it in a negative way. They, you pull out the 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 issues with it. And then I believe this was their second attempt to meet some of those earlier criticisms, which is, well, you didn't look at a larger group to compare. So the right, they did this and there will be more criticisms and they will likely go back next time. And one of the criticisms of this paper was the entire population was from one chiropractic clinic meaning that every person who had every person who was measured had been seeking treatment so that's a particular filter right that's not necessarily the general population and that was one criticism i would say from the media on this paper was like these are people who are all let's say generally i think it wrote out like they're all they all have neck pain so it could just be that people with neck pain have larger protuberances and that's why they're there. Although in the paper itself, they were saying that they people go, to, I guess, to chiropractors for various things. I think that this was a large database of existing imagery. 
that could just be reviewed. Yeah, and I think it was, they hadn't necessarily gone for neck pain. No. So it could have been, they were in the chiropractic practice, but they could have gone for something to do with their foot. Right, and they eliminated people who specifically had cervical issues. So it's just sometimes when you read a piece that's intending to dismiss it and it says, you know, well, they were all from a chiropractic clinic and the authors didn't think about that. If you actually read the paper, they did. They did note it and they did the best with their population. Mm. And a lot of the criticism, this is like kind of going on. What I noticed a lot was there was a lot of scientific criticism about horns. Yes. yes. But the paper didn't include horns. Right. And the researchers never used the word horns. And so a lot of people were criticizing the Washington Post article as if it were the research article. And if you are a layperson and you're reading this and you don't know that horns wasn't the theory or the or part of the presentation of the paper, then it's easy for you to just dismiss what's going on in this piece full stop because I keep saying full stop because I'm talking to you. <laughs> you can carry on. I don't think anyone will okay, mind. You know, to me, it was a little bit confusing. What are you talking about? Are you trying to just, are you trying to take the paper bullet by bullet or are you taking the Washington Post article, which, as you said earlier, might have been the main source of information for the journalist writing subsequent articles? Yeah, absolutely. Which is a problem. It is a problem. I have two points. One is about what you were mentioning earlier about limitations of the study due to their their sample size, etc. And I think that's it's not a helpful criticism. They're, they're actually reporting something that they they presumably observed in their population and thought it was interesting enough to actually study further. And that's how science works. You have a little bit of information and you build on it. And I would hope that lots of people would take this study now because it's produced an awful lot of interest and actually say, right, well, we have we have huge numbers of both, you know, fossil remains of skulls and we have collections from various hospitals. And you could start doing much bigger studies to see if this is actually more of a general phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I that I saw in a lot of the criticisms, which is a is a fair criticism to an extent in that you can't say anything about handheld devices because you know nothing about the population of people that they studied and their habits, which is true. But the authors at no no stage stated that this was definitively this was due. This was a this was a, a suggestion mm-hmm. on their behalf. So I think again, it's it's a fair criticism in that you can't determine if this increase in the size of the protuberance is genuinely occurring younger people, you can't relate it to handheld devices because you have no idea of what the handheld device usage is of your particular population. So that would be a different study. But I think it was a little unfair because they were suggesting the possibility. They weren't actually stating it as fact. Yeah, I think they were trying to make it relevant. Yes. I feel like that's that was the intention. And, and again, if you go back to the headline... Of Washington Post, you know, it says phone use is to blame, right. research suggests. And I guess you could say that there was a suggestion of a mechanism, but I yeah. don't, I, I, I think, again, we're just focusing on the article. But I like that they broke down some of the forward head activities. Like, you know, the, the head is in front of the body for a lot of things, you know, driving and cycling and yes. and all these other pieces. But this is this is a possible explanation for why we would see a phenomenon that 
has been observed medically in older people now in younger people. So the understanding of where they come from, these protuberance changes in size, might need updating. I didn't take any issue with that because I feel like I probably would have done things a little bit differently just because of my mechanical background, which is different than a chiropractor. Like I would right. consider loads more. But but that's but that's how everyone feels about it. Every paper, you look at it from your field and now maybe some biomechanists can take this paper and then maybe you'll see anthropologists yeah. take this paper yeah. and build on understanding from it. That's the way it works. That's what these papers are for is that we're a large group of people with different observations within populations and then you're sharing them and you're developing them. Yeah. So let's switch to what do you think horns? I feel like horns was very clickbaity. I feel like horns tend to go, they tend to like just pull up visions of demons. Yeah. like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. the demonizing of handheld devices yes. or technology over, like, look, now we have horns. Like, I'm not even sure it was not on purpose that it was done that way. But there was a huge reaction, a, a big reaction to this idea that technology would be harmful to us. And a lot of pieces that I read were moral pieces. Like, this is just another paper trying to make the fact that we use technology so much a moral issue. Oh, look, we're ruining our kids. They have horns now. Instead of just trying to take the emotion out of it, just to say, hey, are there changes to our skeleton in some particular way? So I like the criticisms where they were more, here's the problems, but the phenomenon is definitely worthy like to look at even further. Yeah. My big thing is I didn't want this for people who only read the the headlines to go, well, that was debunked, right? Like I hear people say that all the time. Well, they debunked that. And it's like, no, that's like a battle of the media, clickbaity things, and then it just falls away, the interest in the phenomenon, because it's just this emotional roller coaster. I felt like this was really important to those who are interested in Oh, the impacts of movement, posture, positioning, alignment, culture. I thought it was worth a discussion because I think it's very interesting and totally relevant. What I saw, though, was this idea that now our future generations are going to have horns. Like, you know what I mean? Like this, that we are evolving. Or I think I saw a picture, you know, the typical picture of someone coming out and growing out and then back down to a computer and back oh, yes. to like a horn, thing, <laughs> yeah. you know, like now the horns are on the end piece. And so I was like, oh, we really, as I was talking about it with other folks, this idea of morphology, morphology, the study of shape and what shapes us. I love morphology. You know, I've always said that your skeleton is an autobiography of sorts because you're writing it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that things are handed down. So I just thought it would be a really cool place to talk about why this is not that case. Right. You know, how do we talk about morphology and culture? What are genetic changes, adaptations, evolution? Let's talk about some of the selection process. So what do you want to start with? Okay. So these are really complex and big topics. I'm going to try and I think we should go step by step. Always. And define define <laughs> mm -hmm. define things so that people can try and easily separate them out. And it can be challenging. Evolutionary biology is probably one of the hardest literatures to get into. So I think we should start with defining evolution 
natural selection, what different people mean by adaptation, right. and then bring in some culture. Uh, talk about the uh, the role of like culture and gene interaction. Okay. Does that sound like a sensible path? That's great. And plasti- plasticity. I'd like to people to understand plasticity would be good. Yeah. So we'll, we'll define all those okay. so that hopefully if you do ever want to look at papers, you will have a clear idea of what biologists mean when they say certain things. And also to, to see how different the mechanisms are within a life, within an organism's lifetime versus when we're talking about evolution and passing things on. Yeah, so populations. So I, I have a lot of words at this stage. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, Katie, if you want to interrupt me at any point okay. with a question or something that doesn't make sense, please feel free before I go on a horrible monologue. Right. And I think I'll I will interrupt with this idea of what would a listener, what would their question potentially be? Yes, I think that would be great. So evolution, I'm going to use as a, as a very general definition, is descent with modification. So what that means is really there are genetic changes within a species. And since those changes are genetic, they can be passed to the next generation and so forth. And that definition encompasses both like large-scale evolution. So when we're talking about the descent of different species from a common ancestor. So for example, human beings, chimpanzees, and gorillas um, had a common ancestor at one point. So that includes that at large-scale aspect of evolution. And then also small-scale evolution, which would be this might sound a bit complicated, but changes in gene frequency from one generation to the next. And I'll give an example because I think it's always easier to understand when you have an example. So in the human beings, there are various hemoglobin variations. Hemoglobin is the molecule in your red blood cells that carry oxygen. And there are various mutations that change the structure of those hemoglobin molecules. And they usually have... um, some deleterious effects like anemia, but they can also give protection against often the most lethal forms of malaria. So in certain areas of the world, you see a much higher frequency of those genes that code for different types of hemoglobin in areas of the world where there is lots of malaria. And you don't have that in people with European descent, for instance, who have for many generations been living in areas without malaria. So that's a sort of more small-scale evolution within human beings. Does that make sense? It does for me, everyone out there. Okay. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> it would be so nice if we could do a romper room I know. It would be like, does every, hands up. Hands Is up that good? Whether that makes that's sense. right. Okay. All right. So, so that's evolution. And when we talk about selection, so this gets, it gets a little bit more complicated. So I should say one thing first. So Evolution, so evolutionary changes can occur both by what we term selection, but also by something by chance. And -hmm. that's something that people don't often realize. Um, So the term that evolutionary biologists use is genetic drift. So evolutionary changes can occur just by chance through this process of genetic drift. And I say that not to confuse matters further, but just so that You might see that term, and we often don't realize that some changes just come about through no no selective forces at all. It's just random chance. 
So it would be, I'll give you an example. Again, if you have 10 red ants and 10 black ants, very tiny population, and one day a deer runs through a forest and stands on a bunch of them, and it stands on seven red and three black, the population would be then skewed towards black ants, not through any difference in their biological function, but just because it was dumb luck. So a lot of changes that we see are not necessarily selective. So that's just to put that aside. And then let me just pop in here. So dumb luck could be just, I'm trying to think of examples of dumb luck. I love your deer example, but like just like natural catastrophes. Yeah. Those dumb luck. Yes. You just, and, it, and, and those effects are much greater, obviously the smaller the population. Right. So right. human beings would have back in the day, you know, when we lived in small tribes had pretty small populations. Right. So there could be a natural disaster and it's just, just chance. It, it just left people, everyone who had one thing. Right. And, and I think people forget that that's sometimes there's no rhyme, nor reason. It's just, it's a sampling error if you're a mathematician. Right. It's, it's, it's hard not to attribute purpose to everything. It is. But it's really challenging. Yeah. Which actually is interesting because often people think natural selection is purposeful, but it's not, right. again, it's really mathematical. It's not, right. it's not purposeful. So I'll try and, I'll try and explain that next. So natural selection, this is of Charles Darwin fame. So individuals with heritable traits. So that means the characteristics that can be passed on. So individuals with heritable traits that favor survival and reproduction will tend to leave more offspring than others without those traits, causing those heritable traits to increase in frequency over generations. Again, that sounds like a bit of a mouthful. But if you go back to my example with the hemoglobin, there's something which everybody has probably heard of, which is sickle cell anemia. Now, sickle cell anemia can have some, some quite serious consequences. Your red blood cells, um, there's, a, there's a very simple actually genetic change which results in a change in the structure of the hemoglobin molecule. And what it means is your red blood cells become sickle-shaped they're actually also more likely to burst. Um, they're very fragile. So anemia can result along with other things. But like I said, they also confer resistance to malaria. So in populations with high malaria, those traits would have resulted in increased survival and reproduction. So they were they tended to leave people with that mutation or that genetic change had more offspring and and over a period of many generations those characteristics increased in the population i'm just going to restate it a little bit more simply yes which is just a sickle shape to a cell is an asset in areas with malaria yes, that's so right. because it's an asset if you had the non-sickle shape you would have more people not surviving malaria yes and so those with the non-sickle shape would die off or not not make more yes. people. And then so what you do is you end up over time having people with the sickle shape being successful in that environment, having more babies who have the sickle shape, they're more successful. And then over time, what happens is you have entire populations right. that share a particular trait because that trait works well in that environment. It's not an optimal trait it's 
always relative for an environment. That's right. I just wanted to just kind of just restate it simply. Thank you. That was way clearer than my definition. I like both. <laughs> I like both. I think I think it's both. I think that there's just different types of there's people listening with different yes. backgrounds and yeah. and yeah. And I'm sorry. I always talk as a biologist, and it's something that I you should. I, You're a biologist. I cannot get away You're from. Great. But that was great. That was exactly what I was trying to say in much harder words. But also, it's it's a good example because when we look at that trait in an area without malaria, there's no benefit to it. It's actually costly. So that trait mm-hmm. probably occurred in other populations around the world. But essentially, there was a negative selection when that happened, because natural selection would favor its removal from the population when malaria is not present. Right. So that would be a drift. No, no, that's still selection, but it's not. No, I mean, the fact that there was a randomness to sickle cells coming up. Uh, Okay. So no, it's not drift. Okay. I'll explain what it is. So let me just sum up the part that to make sure I've, I'm just kind of checking my own. Yeah. Yeah. So someone else who, for a reason you're about to explain, had a, had sickle shaped cells in an area without malaria. Yeah. They wouldn't necessarily survive better. In fact, it might be more of a liability. It would be be the opposite, yes. It would be the opposite, in which case you would find people with a non-sickle shelf reproducing more, and then you would just see fewer and fewer sickle-shaped cells in folks, and then you just end up with a population that has very little of that uh, occurrence. Exactly. Your question relates to the mechanism of change. So... For natural selection to work, it has to select something. So there has to be a variation in the traits. So so in this case, some people have sickle cell, red blood cells, and some don't. And that occurred because there was a mutation. Right. At some point in somebody or in several people, there was a mutation. And mutation is a change in the genetic code. And it can be for a number of reasons that not everything is perfect in biology and mistakes happen. There's essentially mistakes that happen in, in the copying of DNA. And that change occurred presumably in one or more individuals. And then over many hundreds or thousands of generations, the selection in the malaria areas happened. And conversely, if one of those mutations happened in a population without malaria, it would stay very low or be removed entirely because it has a a negative effect. This is a question that just pops up. Yeah. Why is sickle cell shaped the mutation and not the non-sickle shell? Oh, we're getting philosophical now, I feel. Well, I mean, Um, is that that what it is? Is um, Who knows what the... uh, Well, actually, they probably do know. I don't know. But there would have been an ancestral, what they call an ancestral hemoglobin, mm-hmm. you know, was shared way back. You know, mammalian lineages all have hemoglobin. So what the ancestral hemoglobin looked like, I don't know. But there would have been mutations through, you know, the hemoglobin we've got today is not the same as, as probably it started back, back in the generation of Homo sapiens. So... What is what is a mutation? They're all, yeah. you know, we're we're right. a result of yeah. millions of mutations. So it's relative. I think we always look at mutation as being like a bad thing. Sure. Yeah, and it's not. Well, the word implies. It's really, it can be both. It can be a positive. It can be a negative. It can be completely indifferent. You've got horns it's on just, your red blood cell. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I was just thinking that it seems like malaria jungle areas would have been where we mostly came from. Um, well... 
And that's just like you know, a very shallow assessment very quickly off the top of my head. Uh, yeah, I think, I think well, if you look at Savannah, I mean, the, the hypothesis yeah. is, I mean, although this, this changes all the time, but sure. it's for a, a Savannah origin, which is actually dry, quite okay. dry. Okay, all right. So actually, like if you're looking at West Africa, it's very, very wet. And so actually, I would say that we probably didn't. Oh, I mean, I'm guessing here, but Savannah is certainly drier, probably not. So malaria rife. I guess I was thinking more like, you know how when they talk about mathematically speaking, the way that bees shape their cells optimizes, optimizes the volume. Right. This is a terrible, just off the top of my head, me making stuff up. So like, let's say that there is a mutation and for some reason you have bees that shape their cells differently, that what would make one survive more than the other is simply volume of food, right? Right. Or do what we consider to be, I mean, I would assume that as bees are, you know, turning into bees from whatever else they evolved from, there might have been lots of, lots of different shapes of honey storage or, or do you think that full volume was always the first piece or if it or if the the shape evolved to be that and that's what's perpetuated the way i'm thinking about it is is there something about the non-sickled hemoglobin shape that maximizes let's say oxygen transport yeah right right. so i'm thinking of it as a mathematical shape thing where we would consider the mutation to be one that carried and let's say does its job as a red blood cell with less volume and that's why it's considered a mutation even though it's an asset Yes, maybe. Sorry, that's how my right work. I think probably people have actually done these studies and I don't know them, but they've looked, mm. I mean, it's certainly almost everywhere else, there is no sickle cell anemia. Apart from now, obviously huh. we have more migration, which actually is interesting right. because that can change things too, right? That the ancestral was a form was a donut shaped red blood cell. And that shape has various benefits, volume, Maybe also smooth movement of the blood through the vessels, right, right. you know, less less blockage. Because I know sickle cell can mm-hmm. result in block, like blockage. I that, yeah. So I think there are probably lots of things that would mean that anything that, that changed the sort of donut-shaped red blood cell would be a negative thing. And people talk about it as a mutation because it's it's something that has arisen more recently in the human lineage. But I still don't think they refer to mutation because it's negative. So it's just important to consider. It's just a, it's just, it's just a right. time thing rather than a, the fact that it's, it's a right. negative thing because plenty of mutations have obviously resulted in very positive effects. So That's right. I think it's more like for this idea of alignment, there's this idea of a shape optimizing, but, but that's also in the context of the environment in which you're in. And it's, I'm thinking of a lot... I'm thinking of things much larger than this show right now, but it's important for me to always reconcile all the different pieces. So there are mutations and the mutations are beneficial just as there are uh, different shapes to skeletons and they pay off in some places and they don't pay off in other places. And it's all context driven. (laughs) It really is all context driven. Yes, absolutely. Sorry for that sidebar, but no, no, that was, that was helpful. I think hopefully. Raise your hands, everyone. Was it helpful? Well, yeah, again, raise your hands. <laughs> okay, so so we have, we've done evolution and natural selection. And I think another 
point that I want to make about evolution, and, and this is quite relevant to the, um, the the paper that we're discussing about the morphological change, is that evolutionary changes tend to be slow. So it takes hundreds or if not thousands of generations from a cha- a change from a sorry a, a mutation or a, a to go from low frequency to a high frequency in a population even with strong selection for it because you've start say you start with a population of a thousand people and one person has a change has a mutation obviously you've got the other 999 still having babies etc so it takes even if there's strong selective advantage in that. There's still only one of you. <laughs> there's still only one That's of right. you. So when you're talking about population change, it takes a long time. So that's one, one important point. So now I'm going to talk about the word adaptation, which I think is a very, very challenging because it's like we were saying earlier, there are words, it's an old word, it's been around for hundreds, hundreds of years, and it's, been co-opted by biologists in different ways. I would say that all biologists really use it to mean a process by which a species becomes fitted to its environment. Mm -hmm. But an evolutionary biologist would probably use it quite differently to maybe a physiologist. And this is when things become messy. So an evolutionary biologist would often imply by that term genetic adaptation. Right, right. So they would actually mean this organism is becoming fitted to its environment through genetic change. Now, a physiologist might use it in a much more general way in the way that an organism might adapt to its immediate environment. So temperature or something like that. So it's difficult to necessarily know, especially if you're not aware of the person that's right, the, the viewpoint of the person writing the term, what they actually mean by that term, which is challenging. So evolutionary biologists tend to use the term phenotypic plasticity, which sounds awful. No, it sounds great. <laughs> get them on, we're going to get it on hats and you should sell them on your website. Yes. Phenotypic, phenotypic plasticity. plasticity. So phenotypic plasticity essentially means the ability of an for an organism to express different characteristics depending on the environment and that doesn't necessarily have to be positive in this case so a great example is um amphibious plants it's quite an extreme example so you have amphibious plants that grow partly in water and partly out of water they have the same genetic information across the whole plant, obviously, it's one plant, but they have different leaves below the water and different leaves above the water. So it's a, it's basically they're able to have a completely different phenotype. So phenotype is the, uh, the set of observable characteristics of an organ- organism. So if someone just took a picture of the top of the plant and showed it to the pic- showed someone a picture of the bottom of the plant, they would look like two different plants, but they're the same. So plants tend to be much more, the term plastic, like much more flexible. So all of this might be a bit complicated. Well, let me, let me just ask a question first. Yeah. If I have one arm mm-hmm. in a cast for, let's give the extreme, three months, and I yeah. my left arm, and I'm vigorously working out my right arm. Yeah. And I showed you my two arms. Are there phenotypes different? Yes. Okay. 
that there's yeah. just just to just yeah. to ground it in yeah. in what we're talking about. And yeah. so I can have different phenotypes of arms on my one body, and then I could also yeah. have a b- before picture and an after picture of my entire body, and there will be a change in my phenotype. Let's say if I started running or, yes. or you know whatever. Yes, like, absolutely. Okay. M- muscle. I mean, and that's that's where you would u- where you see physiologists use adaptation a lot is right. muscle adaptation. And what they mean is it's not anything to do with genetics. It's just that eat, every organism has a degree of flexibility mm-hmm. to, to respond right. to change. It's your viewmaster for move your DNA. Yes, it absolutely is. <laughs> to go for so, a completely outdated 1980s reference that will yes. be totally obsolete in seven years from now. It will. It will. I mean, have your children seen one? <laughs> no, they have no, no idea what it is. But I write, okay. I'm so like such an 80s child. I was yeah. like, everyone will know what this is. Oh, I know. No, true. If I was explaining to my <laughs> eldest son what uh, um, a VHS tape was today. Right, right. He was like, oh my goodness. So another human example, which is easy to see on a longer time scale, is because I think sometimes you see changes over generations and people think that it's genetic, but most human populations are taller now than they were 100 years ago. But it's not, and okay, there's several generations have gone by, but it's not a hereditary change. It's largely- It's not a genetic change. No, it's not not a genetic, it's largely just diet. So your phenotype is responding to improved diet. It's not responding to a heritable change in human beings. Right. So so that's phenotypic plasticity. So in the term adaptation, I think I would prefer to see people clarify genetic adaptation versus phenotypic adaptation. So if anyone's listening out there who writes papers for the sake of every mm-hmm. or blogs or even blogs or even like blogs. Or anything that's informed, that's yes. probably how about the Washington Post? Yes, if you're Washington listening Post. to this. There you go. <laughs> just um, just clarify what you mean. And I also think in exercise, you know, we use like adaptive exercise yes. typically means that you're modifying something. I think adapt is being used. And I use it too this way many times, just casually, is this idea that you're changing an element of something. It's still its original, but you're changing an element of it. And that definition might hold all the way through, but it is confusing when adaptation means process yes. for many. You know, when, yes. the, when the term is loaded with a process and a mechanism, it, it, mean, it makes it challenging to hold a conversation. And this is also why I put that at the end of Move Your DNA is because there's so many important discussions that need to be had right now, but we're all using the same words with different definitions and it's very confusing. So just starting by going, how do you use that word? What does that mean? And then I think that many arguments are sorted out when you spend more time asking for clarification to someone else's point rather than just trying to defend your own without understanding. Yes, because you might actually just be talking about two different things entirely. So many yeah. times that's what it is. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. So so culture. Should we go on to culture now? I think culture is important because I think that yeah. the horn thing, I'm going to call it the horn thing forever. Yeah. Thanks, Washington Post. I think there was a visceral reaction to this idea that where we are right now that feels so inevitable. Like, so I... At the end, or maybe now, it's like when you read that people are growing horns, they're not growing horns, but when when you read that there might be something left in our skeleton that tells a story about how we 
held our body. And I just have to do this. Remind me to get back here because one cool thing about research papers is there's a comment section on research papers many times. Yes. Yes. Often. Yes. To me, that would be my second thing is, so, you know, you're reading the Washington Post and then maybe if you're not comfortable with papers, then you want to read all the other opinion pieces and you start to pull things out. But eventually you have to go back to the original source or it could all just be people arguing about reporting and not arguing about research. You can, When you get into those sections, you can see people who are peers many times point out pieces or refer you to other things. So that's gold as well. But there was... Yeah, that is, that is very true. That's, that's another place um, for more perspective. Yeah. And they're also, particularly in, I would say, the, the journals with high impact. So just to, to clarify, so there are with with scientific journals and other academic journals, they have what's called an impact rating. So the impact is like how many people read those papers and value them highly. So highest impact journals sell nature science. Those are those are the big three guns. And then there's lots of other proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that are very high, highly regarded journals. And people, a lot of people read them, a lot of very clever people in different fields and they will often write letters which and particularly if a paper is contentious researchers will actually write to the journal and those letters will be published and then the authors will respond to those letters so that's also and they tend to be a little bit more technical so if you if you are a little more technical and the, an article is particularly uh, important but perhaps um not towing the line, you know, being quite radical in their uh, views. You'll often get letters and those are really interesting to read. It's helpful. I think the discussion yeah. between people who see things differently is where new hypotheses come from. You know what yes, I mean? You absolutely. need that. You yeah. need that back and forth. It's very important. Yeah. And they can be very entertaining. Some oh, of the it's, it's great. It's, it's, it's know, like, it shows that scientists can actually have a bit of fun sometimes. They do. Too. They do. In one of those letters, though, I had read something akin to, well, if a forward head, the weight of the head mm -hmm. being forward, would cause an increase in the size of the protuberance, then we would expect to see four-legged animals to have much larger ones. Oh, right. And I just right. thought that that criticism to me mm. was a challenge. It made, immediately made me think of like a bison. An American yeah. bison, or or any other animal whose whose anatomy has developed over a much longer time, right. you know, like where you look at the vertebral bodies and the dorsal yeah. extension of the vertebral body being so long to generate so much leverage. I just thought it was a so like, you just have to take everything with a grain of salt. Is not everyone who's commenting yes. on a paper knows mechanics. No, absolutely. Not everyone knows biology. I now you know? remember seeing that and thinking how ridiculous because they presumably got so many different structures. Right. Yeah. Like, it was just it was just one of those things like going, yeah, but in something that has been on its hands and knees with its head out in front of it for millions right. of years, there is yes. a, an evolved shape to those things. So it's just part of the thing with, you know, why I'm interested in this idea of a shape that optimizes function. Although, mm -hmm. again, that's modifiable based on context yeah is you have to have some parameters around function and this idea of adaptation or is that the right word to say like there it's this idea that the human body can just build muscles 
to tolerate whatever it does rather than I think what the authors of the paper and what I'm just trying to explain through my own work, which is there's costs to some of the things that we are doing right. physically. There's costs. And if you're trying to figure out why there's a rise in costs or a rise in need to deal with our structure, it might relate to these things called, you know, the mechanical laws and and how your body, how your phenotype adapts to yes. the mechanical environment in which you're in. I made that change just for you. <laughs> just Thank so you. you know. That was the first time that's ever come out of my mouth. It probably was a move your DNA, but anyway. Okay, so... Culture. culture. Culture is very important. This is about culture. This is about, I think, a population of people not recognizing that culture does influence phenotype. Yes, absolutely. And evolution. And evolution. Yes. And actually, some people think it's probably the thing that is actually is is the major driving force for modern or evolution in modern human beings. Right. So I think I think a lot of people have have an idea about evolution and natural selection and they think about an animal adapting genetically to this ex- very external environment that they have nothing to do with so it's this kind of hostile environment that's temperature it's pressure it's humidity it's it's lions it's lions <laughs> it's diseases right but your environment can be very much modified by you by your culture so you can change your environment. And lots of animals do that, you know, nest builders, et cetera. They change and modify their environment. And I think a lot of people also think that modern human beings aren't evolving because we're kind of separate now from the environment. We, we, we made it. We made, we made it. it. We're, we're now here. protected in our boxes. We have medicine. Right. It's just that the selective forces now may be very different to when we didn't have all those things protecting us from lions and diseases. We're just, we're really making the pressures now. The pressures are things that we're creating. Exactly. So the classic example of culture is, um, which I I think examples always help people to, to visualize. Totally. So the classic example is lactase persistence. So lactase is the enzyme that breaks down lactose, which is milk sugar. So back, you know, 20,000 years ago, whatever, when, when, all human beings were still living hunter-gatherer lifestyles, all human beings pretty much lost the ability to digest lactose shortly after weaning, so in childhood. And still today, probably the largest proportion of, of, of adult human beings still do not digest lactose, milk sugar. So then around 10,000 years ago, in some areas, we started seeing animal uh, domestication and dairying. And actually, it seems that people started to drink milk first before any kind of adaptation happened. So since that process, the culture changed. We went from populations that that did not have domesticated milk-producing animals to having those. That was a cultural shift. And people started drinking that milk. And then in some actually in different populations, there were slightly different mutations, which enabled adults to continue to produce lactose, sorry, lactase and break down milk sugar. Because that was such a strong selective pressure, because presumably there were loads of different benefits from drinking milk, both in terms of growth, um, age to reproductive maturity, 
probably being able to wean your children much earlier, et cetera, et cetera. So that had a very strong effect on your what's called your reproductive fitness. So we see that. And still, even so, that was a very strong selection pressure. It still took, you know, almost probably 9,000 years to, to become to the levels it is today. So now in lots of parts of Europe, the Middle East, people now, by and large, are what's called lactose tolerant. They can, the lactase enzymes persist and they're able to digest the milk sugar. And we call people that can't lactose intolerant, of course. And there are, there are plenty of those too, but they're much rarer in the populations in areas that have been dairy mm-hmm. farming for a long time. So that's a very classic example of a cultural effect, a gene culture interaction. So we created the selection pressure essentially by by starting to drink milk. Yeah. I'm just nodding. That was a sigh. That was a big it, sigh. It was Katie. just, well, it just, I think there's this <laughs> idea that nature, and I think culture is often put under the word nurture because nature nurture sounds cute. It's like yes. nature versus nurture is often yes. the head-to-head battle, but it's really nature via nurture and also nurture via nature. Like they're constantly informing each other, you know, one shapes yeah. the other and that's yeah. what, and yeah. that's, that's the story. Yeah, absolutely. Even things like sexual selection is huge. You know, that's a, and we all choose our, our partners perhaps in a much more, you know, cultural culturally informed way you know what was attractive in your partner thousands of years ago might be different to what it is today and of course and that clearly has a an effect on mm-hmm. reproduction so so there's there's loads of things that that yeah culture is huge in terms of its and gene culture interactions is a hot topic i think in evolutionary biology because really i think lots of people think it is a major driver it's very challenging to parse the two. Oh, yes so talk yes, about the y- sure. so yams, and I sent out a link in our last newsletter about the sickle cell anemia and yam farming, because I think that, so we've already talked about right. the selection, yeah. the mutation yes. of sickle cells, but why it worked, why it persisted had a lot to do with the culture of the group in which it mutated. So you want to talk about that? Yes. Yeah. So I haven't read so much on this, but basically yam farming involves creating, creating, well, standing pools of water results mm-hmm. when they grow yams, as I understand it. So you are basically creating environments for mosquitoes to breed and flourish. So malaria rates presumably increased. So it was essentially the cultural activity of yam farming increasing the number of mosquitoes, which increases the likelihood of getting malaria. And then the trait followed along behind that cultural process. So you saw the increased gene frequency or appearance of sickle cell anemia in those populations. And that was in Africa. And you also, interestingly, there is apparently something going on in Asia with tires, tire production. So they so they're producing tires in I can't remember where it is in Asia. So the tires create a extra um, surface area, an extra surface area that collects water, mm-hmm. and the mosquitoes can can then flourish there. So it was yeah. So it's interesting because I lived, as you know, Katie. I lived in Bermuda for a number of years, um, and Bermuda suffered quite a lot from yellow fever and dengue fever and things like that hundreds of years ago. But there's still you can be prosecuted for actually allowing standing bodies of stagnant water to persist. 
So that was quite interesting. Yeah. And when I went to New Zealand a couple of years ago, as we were passing through Polynesia, there was outbreaks of dengue fever. Oh, interesting. And so that's when I, you know, of course, my research brain is then like, why is there an increase? And there is a large association. And it's, it's also that we are in the United States, and I'm not sure about other countries, North America too, shipping our used tires that we don't oh. use any longer abroad, yes. right? Because they're cheaper. Okay, because it's, so it's, it's fine for other people to kill themselves with bull tires. Right. Well, they're yeah. just they're less expensive. And also where you're going to put them. And then what happens is they hold standing water. So very quickly, yeah. the ubiquitousness of, of the residue of the car-centric culture yeah. ends up affecting mosquito breeding grounds, and then you end up increasing mosquito-borne illnesses. And and it's not a very big step to tie it back to what are other symptoms of our lack of being able to carry our bodies great distances? And like, it's how do you put in a mosquito-based disease? But I really, when you can see it so clearly from excessive standing water, but of course you, you can see that with the understanding of, of the catalyst for sickle cells evolving into mm-hmm. a group was also the decision to change or modify the environment largely. We're going to yes. cut the forest down and we're going to grow things here. And that ends up changing. And then, of course, changes who gets to survive there. And then you end up over yeah. time without realizing it, shaping population. So I was talking about that at a permaculture retreat because I had just kind of, it was blowing my mind. It's like I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have tied dengue fever to the car movement without just this understanding of really, like they're really trying desperately to, as you said, educate people on how to store tires. Yeah. But it's also like, well, maybe if we just, drive less and don't use as many tires and go to public Mm -hmm. transportation. You don't have such a huge waste because who thought of tires as being mosquito nurseries? But they are. And they are in the environments where rainwater accumulates, you know, and it's so easy to say, well, just drill holes in it. Like, what if they go to areas where everyone doesn't have power tools in their own personal garage, which is, you know, the other flip side of it. But yeah, that bothered me a lot when I read that. But anyway, okay, so culture. Culture is definitely at play when it comes to our genetics over although the scale right. is longer for sure yep. oh my gosh where to now we could just keep I know, going where I know. could we just yeah keep we going? could keep going so horns are not i keep calling them horns I'm gonna call them yeah horns. so there was no way that the horns or whatever else you want to call them could our genetic change you need hundreds, thousands of generations no. to really see. And it would have to be a benefit. Like the person with yes. the, the person with the change would have to be more successful in a particular environment. But then I was thinking, well, right. I guess if the future is all tech-based, tech. would the person with yeah. the longer lever, with the you know the neck, be able to withstand large, larger bouts of time? And and that, that's to me, that's the loop. Is we are really well suited for the chair. We are really well suited for right. the. Well, we don't know what it is. And I, also, one of my other points was like, it's handheld devices is such a random thing. I mean, you are, oh, you're no. looking at, this is my other critique of the paper, which is, this is the first generation. They they measured, I think it was 20 to 30 year olds, which was the group where they are 18 to 30 right, year olds. Yes. Yep. It's not just handheld devices. This is the first generation that's grown up 
completely on a computer. Yes, absolutely. You know what I mean? Like I got my first home computer when I was probably 12, but it was a, such a small percentage of my life. I mean, I had two crap yes. games and like most of them were just typing and I never played them for more than an hour every couple of days because it was much more fun to go do other things. Everyone else was doing right. other things. So everyone else was drawing you into a bunch yeah. of other things. So it's really, That's really right. recently that children have spent so much time on the computer and also not doing anything else, not walking, not riding right. their bikes, not, you know, so it's not only this idea of things in our hands. I, I think there's a lot of interesting ways that this research can be continued upon because these are new, new skeletal environments, but will it persist? I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, and the, the other thing is, and this is, again, maybe getting a little too complex, but there's, when we go back to, where is, this is what we would call phenotypic plasticity. Your skull is responding. This feature is a response Correct. to the environment. Now, there's a lot of debate that goes both ways, but if phenotypic plasticity could constrain evolution and it could potentially accelerate it. So by that, I mean, if you already have the flexibility mm -hmm. to deal with the situation, it may then it may constrain evolution because there won't be a significant advantage to the person who mutates a something that's constitutive. So by constitutive, I mean, they always express this external protuberance because your body already has the capacity to do it if it needs to. No. So does that make sense? I said no. <laughs> I said no, that's fine. I wanted so to in my mind, I was building the example of this is not something you're born with. Right. This is something that is increasing in length over time, over over load applied over time. Yes. Yeah. But your plasticity, your ability, but your ability. Sorry, I'm just trying to talk myself through so you can see where I don't understand. So yeah. my ability, though, to for it to grow longer, my plasticity, my phenotypical phenotype plasticity. Yes. That's yes. not that's just yes. what it is. Exactly. Yeah, I think I haven't explained myself well. So so we have that, assume we, we have that plasticity. I know nothing about the genetic control of these exocytosis. Mm. And I seems to be from just a few bits that I've looked at in these papers that very early on in development, you know, everything is the bones and the joints and right. are set. But what I'm saying is if you say just theoretically that a mutation occurred in development, like in a developmental process that meant that you had a larger protuberance at that point at the EOP. Like you came with the gene for at, at, at adult, you're going to have the right. 10 millimeter. Yes. Okay. Got it. Exactly. Which is unlikely because often development is quite constrained. But anyway, just in theory, if you had that, you would really have no if the, say there was a selective advantage again, in theory, something made you made this this impact your reproductive fitness or your survival, which again is a long shot, but just say that was possible or it occurred, you still have nothing over the person that has the flexibility to generate it right. by phenotypic plasticity. So there's right. no differential between you yeah. for selection to act on. So that's why there's a theory that actually our our flexibility, our, our ability to be phenotypically plastic, 
can actually constrain genetic change for Mm -hmm, that reason. mm -hmm. That's why we haven't changed that much. Right. Because our plasticity range is quite large. It's quite large. And And yeah, and also lots of things like this are set by regulatory path gene pathways that are very unlikely to change right. because they're all interlinked and it gets very complex. Yeah. But but yeah, so it's just, it seems a situation on so many levels that it would be unlikely that we would see any evolutionary change in that feature. Right. That was a very long way to say that. No, but, it's, no, but I think it's, I mean, we've already talked so long. Who cares now at this point? We're going <laughs> to, this is going to be the Joe Rogan three hour podcast. That's, that's what's going to happen say. right now. <laughs> we're getting, we're getting pretty close to the two hour mark. That's right, I think. That's oh right. my goodness. Well, it's, you know, I always feel bad because I, I always want to lead in with these things are complicated because I don't want anyone to feel badly when they don't grasp them quickly. It's not that they're complicated. Yeah. It's that they require years of hours of investing time to work up to gathering the pieces. And that's what makes the ideas that's right. more accessible is because of the time in years, yep. in volume, that we've all dedicated to whatever the thing is. You know, some people can knit and I can't do that. And it's not that it's complex. Like, it's so easy. And it's not easy because because it's, it's because no. of the hours that you've invested. And so these things that we're talking about, I don't think are any more challenging to grasp. It's just that it's what's a challenge is more, I would say on my end or your end to take something that we have understood in a particular way because of the years of hours of investment into a way to make them useful or relevant or helpful to you in a one hour show. That's what's challenging. It's so, but we're already at a two hour show. Because that's what we had to do because yeah. the years going into all of these things are a lot. That's uh, right. Yeah. And it's hard it, to be succinct when there are so many interlinked it, phenomena. It's hard to be succinct when when every single word has to be defined. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> and that's all that's all jargon is. Jargon is is succinct terminology for those that chose to study the years to understand what each of those words mean. So it's just that. So to go jargon-free, jargon exists because a lot of words represent concepts that take a lot of explanation, that take a lot of other words. Like, okay, you got all those other words? The word we're going to put on it is plasticity. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, but it took all these other yeah. words. So, so it's not, I don't think jargon is meant to be yeah. not inclusive. It's just we all chose where to put our time. And, and, and also, but we have to function like yeah. we've, we have outsourced understanding to different things, to different folks. And so this is a way of going, how do we get some of it back? Because maybe now we're willing to put in time to learn different things. And I appreciate your help in clarifying some of those terms. I think it'll make it hopefully a lot more clear for everyone. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. And I think lots of people are interested in genetics and evolution and, you know, there's evolutionary medicine and, and, you know, the, mm-hmm. the evolutionary mis- mismatch theory. And I think, I think there's a lot of general interest in that. So having a, li- a little bit of understanding of the words that might be used is, oh, is hopefully so. going to be helpful. I'm sure I could have you on five more times. We'll just keep talking about things like this. And just talk about stuff that we talk about usually just to each other. This would be so great. Yeah. Being a human being, social issues. So I have lots of different hats that I wear. So without saying that it has to be a biological takeaway or a technical takeaway, what's your takeaway? My takeaway, I think, would be I had some issues with how the paper was written, but I don't believe these guys, I think they've just made some mistakes in how they present things. 
or maybe not presented it in the best way. But I would definitely look at this and think habits have consequences. And these guys are chiropractors that are presumably seeing something quite interesting in their population. They might have something in it. So it would definitely be if it's true that we're seeing these things in younger and younger people, it's something that we should be aware of in terms of our habits. And I definitely, not just from this study, but from everything else that I have read, think that extended periods of sedentary time looking at a device has negative consequences. So I think it's valid. I would be I'll be really interested to see what comes out of it. But as a parent, it's definitely I do not want my children to spend hours in any position for any length of time, really. But I also, as a parent, have that whole guilt concept of what do I do about it? And I think that's where your work comes in so well. But we have all the issues with schools and screens and how to navigate that, which is super challenging, I think, for our generation and our kids. Yeah. So, yeah. And that was the point when I put a, put my head in the hand, my hands and I just want to sell my house and go and buy a plot of land <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. And um, but uh, but yeah, I think that's my takeaway. It's worth taking these people seriously, I think. Yeah. And and seeing what comes out. I think now there will be lots of follow up of this kind of thing. And it'll be really interesting to see what comes out of it. Yeah, my I think my takeaway is probably fairly similar I could see some of the the tendency to dismiss is like, oh, these have always ranged in shape, and don't worry about it. And that and that is true. There's there's always there there as many documented ranges of shape. Of course, no one's correlated them to the weights of the heads. You know what I mean? Like, right? Yes. It's, it's very. Yes. It was very move your DNA as as far as the orca fin goes. You know, uh, male orcas have taller dorsal fins. Yes. They have bigger bodies overall. So my hypothesis would be that you see longer longer protuberances in heavier heads. And yeah. and probably males tend to have heavier heads, but you would right. just you would see that there was a natural relationship between length and weight because that's what mm-hmm. it's for. And also I think it's really important that none of the papers discuss it your trapezius muscles. It's not just the weight of your head, it's also the tension. And so that's another piece and why their, their, their measures of posture were poor. And I also don't think that posture is the best thing here. I think load is the bigger thing to understand. Also, uh, two-dimensional posture measures scientifically are very poor because right. of the way that it's done. But anyway, if we were to do something more about uh, measuring trapezius EMG, for example, that would give us greater understanding of just the amount, just the tensions that are on mm-hmm. this boat. It's not only the weight of the head, it's all these other things. But you could do little things like bend your knees to make the weight of your head less. So there's there's a lot of compensation things. Right. But anyway, that, so that's a mechanical aside. The other thing is that is would be concerning is that these are normal, variance is normal, but it's kind of like the folded fin. There's a difference between seeing, you know, a few orcas with a little bend to their fin from a known accident or some known outlier and then seeing every single one who lives in a particular way with a folded fin. So you can put them under the sentence of going folded fin syndrome. We see it in the wild. We see it here. It's like, okay, that's true. But what is the frequency and the distribution and the actual geometry? So that's what they're doing here. So I pay attention to it for that. Yeah. I think it would be really nice if they started to compare 
this data and other data sets for x-rays to fossil remains. And there's lots of collections right. of right. skulls, which are presumably much easier actually to to measure. Actually measure. Because they actually measure. measure. And also they have... Yeah, they have populations which had very high load to that area. Like, um, what's the term? A tump, uh, tumpaline, tumpaline, where they have the the um, men and women that carried things um, with a band around the forehead, and then they carry oh, right. you know, whether it's a baby or something on the back. And I think those populations with a very high load to that part of the head and the neck where they're really using the neck and the back to help support the weight. Mm-hmm. I think that's where you see this as well. So it'd be very interesting to just see, well, we know these populations had this very high load and then we compare to maybe other populations who were weavers or, you know, or um, I'm thinking of um, Victorian Britain where they had, you know, people working at looms and um, for very long periods of time, whether those those people also had these kind of features right. to try and to try and build up a bigger picture a bigger mechanical a argument. bigger mechanical picture a bigger mechanical um, picture I think and, and i hope that that might this paper might actually bring those two fields together to people actually do some really big big studies there's so much out there you know some yeah. some graduate students is exactly. listening hopefully and i was yeah, like some, that's my thesis yeah. right there yeah exactly but also i think that seeing something in children that you've only seen in adults is also an issue because you're kind of you're setting bone uh, bone robusticity and bone density are interesting where I don't know if this would fall under plasticity you're you you kind of set uh, limits when you're a child for your skeletal experience as right. an adult yeah. and so yeah. Yeah. and so when and the people who do have larger perturbances there's surgery for it it is not symptom free. And so that was another thing that was expressed. It's like, well, we're seeing this thing that has known, it's like, whatever, a shape. So what? It's like, well, there's symptoms and surgeries associated with this shape. And the fact that it's becoming more ubiquitous, perhaps, and at a younger age, this this would be predicting the experience for a group of people and then trying to figure out Why? And I also think that with technology, whether this is technology or whatever it is, I mean, weaving was technology at some point and people figured it out Mm -hmm. and we've been trying to come away from it. I am very hopeful because I think that when I think of smoking, if I look at TV movies from the 50s and the 40s and photos and like everyone was smoking, people were smoking on TV, doctors were smoking. Yeah. There was no good use practices around it. And technology has come on so quickly there are no good use practices around it. And I think that we're pretty good at recognizing an issue and then trying to put safety practices around it, right? We've done it with, yeah. I have this dream of doing this video. You know, if people, it, like just about the addictive nature of, let's just say handhelds, if you think of every time you pick up your phone, like it's on the toilet, it's <laughs> It's in your car. It's it's like yes. all these sites. And like, imagine if you just had a flask and we're taking a nip out of your oh, flask. Oh, yeah, that's true. And just doing a video yeah. of just like drinking it and to be like, this would be a problem if it was alcohol. If you were yeah. taking little sips of it while you're sitting at a stoplight because you couldn't go. go for a full 11 minutes without checking. I can't tell you how much I love that picture on so many levels. <laughs> Can you imagine a little video yeah. going, this would be a no. problem, and then just do it with the phone to yeah. get some sort of context for what it looks yeah. like. And that's another thing is 
I don't think that technology requires a head position. That's the other assumption here. Yeah. That's yeah. the other takeaway for, yeah. for Move Your DNA is, is the fact that what part of what we're trying to do is how do you participate? How do you not yeah. miss the note from your office, but don't have to, you don't have to get all, get a horn about it. You know what I mean? Like, yes, you, like yes, the, yes. the horn is a load. The cell phone is not triggering a bone growth. They're talking really about this idea that how you use your body affects its morphology mm. or its phenotype. Yep. Yep. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I just try to incorporate people's words right away so I don't miss them. <laughs> but anyway, okay. I hope this has been illuminating. Jeanette, thank you so much for coming on. We could talk forever. Well, thank you for having me. It's nice to um, have someone that appreciates me rabbiting on. I do. I do. <laughs> I do. And I think a lot of people would like to know more. It's so very helpful to read more about and by Dr. Jeanette Lorem or take a move of your DNA weekend with her or another one of her workshops. Visit her website www.JeanetteLorem, that's two N's and two T's, J-E-A-N-N-E-T-T-E, Lorem, L-O-R-A-M.com. You can also find it linked in the show notes. Thanks so much for coming on. Bye. Oh my goodness, my friends, that was such a long show. I hope you had a nice long walk out of it. And if you had to listen to it in short bursts totally understandable and i hope you found it valuable but while i have your ear let me talk to you about a couple of the live events i'm doing this summer one i am headed to cambridge uk august 31st for a one day human movement on and off the mat workshop and i'd love to see you there also regenerative rancher and author donega markegaard who was on the show last year she and I are once again joining forces. We will be in Ojai, California on Sunday, September 22nd for another edition of Wilderness Moves. This event is focused on the movements that relate to growing and gathering food. It's going to be a good one. Come if you can. You can find details about both of these events at nutritiousmovement.com. Go to our live events page. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter. My social media break continues, and so does my newsletter. It's the best way to find out what's up, yo. Also, speaking of the social media break, one of the things I am doing this summer, while not on social media, is working on a new book I am very excited about. It's a book about kids, family movement, and movement ecology. I'd love to include your stories about how you move with your kids, how your kids move with and without you, how you've changed habits and habitats to get more movement in nature into your families or maybe your classroom's life. Everyone's stories matter tremendously. The more diverse a range of stories, the more folks this book can speak to. If you would like to share your story and circumstances, your solutions with me, urban, rural, everything in between, we want international submissions and submissions from those with or for those who have kids with disabilities. There's no particular story I'm after. Transitioning to more movement, more nature, and more natural movement is a lifelong journey of small steps, and often small steps are the most attainable for others just starting out. So if you found any step, big or small, that helped you create magic and movement for your family, I'd love to include it in Grow Wild. You can also find the submission guidelines in the show notes for this podcast. If I use your story, you will receive three signed copies of Grow Wild when it comes out. That's it for Move Your DNA this time. Thanks for listening. Until we meet again, remember to go deeper into your movement-rich life and into the story behind the story. 
Peace. This has been Move Your DNA with Katie Bowman, a podcast about movement. Hopefully you find the general information in this podcast informative and helpful, but it is not intended to replace medical advice and should not be used as such.